We're going to be in Second Kings chapter 4 this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, now as we look into your word and as we seek to understand what's here, we know that you have given us things in scripture, examples and narratives that are that have a purpose. And so as we read this morning together and as we study, we pray that you would help us to sense and to understand what it is that you want us to know and what we need to be working on in our own lives as a result of what we're seeing and hearing in your word. So thank you. We pray for your guidance. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I didn't mention it earlier, but John and Amber Adams are here from Papua New Guinea. They're actually hiding right over here in the corner. But they'll be hanging around afterwards if you've got questions for them. Um, I'm sure they'd be happy to spend quite a bit of time talking to you about it. So anyway, thank you guys for being here today. We really appreciate it. One of the hardest things to do in professional sports is to follow a legend. Um, Carol and I were in Colorado when John Elway showed up. And we had moved to Detroit and he was still playing. Um, And they've had a whole series of quarterbacks after that that you kind of never really measured up. Just they were always playing in John Elway's shadow. And it's interesting, that carries over into other areas as well sometimes. I know when Carol and I were praying about um, an area of ministry where we could serve the Lord, we were looking at Mexico and South America and different places. And one of the things that swayed us away from Mexico was that that's where my dad had spent so many years serving and ministering. And uh, I just, I had been there enough times to realize that if I went anywhere, it would be, oh yeah, that's Don Keefe's little boy. You know, I'm six foot three and a couple hundred pounds and I'm still Don Keefe's little boy. So we decided, you know what, that's a, that's a shadow I didn't want to work under. I love my dad and love ministering with him, but when it came to full-time service and missions, we were really thankful the Lord led us in a different direction <clears throat> than there. Imagine, if you will, though what it was like for Elisha. I mean, he's been Elijah's servant for many years. And you never even heard his name other than when he was called initially. After that, you didn't hear about Elisha. Until Elijah's taken up in, into heaven, and Elisha suddenly is on the scene. So God made it very clear. Elijah was his prophet to Israel, and now he's making it very, very clear that Elisha is his prophet to Israel. Now here, just in, in the names very quickly, Elijah's name meant, my God is Yahweh. And that's the name of the covenant-keeping God of Israel. And he was a prophet from 875 to 850. So for 25 years, Elijah was God's spokesman to Israel, the northern kingdom. And then you've got Elisha, and his name is means, my God is salvation. And if you look at the time frame here, you've got from 850 to 800 B.C., 50 years that he actually serves as the prophet of Israel. So Elijah was the voice of God for 25 years, and Elisha took it over, and he became the voice of God to the northern kingdom for over 50 years. What an amazing thing. Think about that. And just kind of going through and just thinking this through this week, uh, we read the passage about how Elijah in Elisha crossed the Jordan, and then, of course, he says, what can I do for you? And, and when someone was about ready to pass, uh, <clears throat> the head of a household or someone like Elijah, who was um, a mentor of Elisha's, many times they would offer something as kind of a, a blessing, if you will. 
And so Elijah was saying, what can I do for you? And you remember what Elisha said? I want a double portion of your spirit. And he didn't mean I want to be twice as wealthy or anything like that. What he was saying was, I saw and watched and was with you and saw God work through you. I want to have twice as much of God working through me, is what he was saying. So stop and think about it. 25 years for Elijah, 50 years for Elisha. Twice as long. And you start looking at different miracles and you find out that it works out to the ones that are recorded for us. It's twice as many. And it's one of those interesting little things in scripture that, uh, you know, you don't really think about until you start looking and say, oh, okay, now I get it. You know, Elijah, Elisha was not asking for something selfish. He was asking for God's power to be at work in him. He knew he couldn't do this job without God. He watched Elisha, Elijah work, and so he knew that. So, um, <clears throat> verse 13, just kind of put that up there real quick. He, he's on the other side of the Jordan. He picked up Elijah's, Elijah's cloak, which had fallen when he was taken up into heaven by the whirlwind. And he returns to the Jordan, and he taps the Jordan, and of course the Jordan spreads apart. And all of the people that were watching, there were some prophets who were watching at that point, they're the ones that said, look, the spirit of Elijah is now in Elisha. We see that he is the prophet of God. And as he was picking up that that cloak, one of the things that are probably going through Elisha's mind is, I'm taking up now the mantle of leadership. I'm the one that now has to help the communities of prophets throughout Israel. I'm the one that God is going to be using in it, whatever way he chooses. And it's fascinating as you read the two, Elijah was kind of one of those guys that seemed to be kind of almost in hiding until God sent him somewhere. And then he kind of ambushed whoever he was he was going to go see, like uh, Ahab in, in the in the vineyard that he'd just stolen from, from Naboth. He all of a sudden, boom, there's Elijah. He shows up. And yet Elijah seems to be a guy that's just always on the move. He actually stayed in Samaria, the capital, from various times. And then he would be in other places. And he would also visit the schools of the prophets or the prophet communities regularly. And so that was what you see. And we'll pick up a little bit more on that as we get into the passage. So starting in verse 1, chapter 4, One day the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, My husband who served you is dead. And you know how he feared the Lord, but now a creditor has come, threatening to take my two sons as slaves. Now, if you remember, in the Jewish uh, Old Testament law, there were times and ways that someone could um, redeem a debt, if someone, or they could pay off their debt by selling themselves into slavery. Many times it was for a period of time, and of course it was the year of Jubilee. All slaves that had done that were set free. But this is a woman who says, listen... You know, I've got this debt. I have no way to pay it. I've got two young boys, and they're going to get taken away as slaves. Now, normally what a family member would do is a family member would redeem them, pay off the debt and redeem them to set them free. In this case, it's Elisha who's going to act in that capacity. And you'll see as we go through the passage. Verse 2, Elisha says this, What can I do to help you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she answered, nothing at all except a flask of olive oil. The olive oil at that time was a very, very uh, marketable commodity. It was something that was used for all kinds of things. It was used for, uh, for, for in cooking. It was used as fuel for like oil lamps, that kind of thing, and lots of other uses as well. So um, that's the one thing she has. Verse 3, Elisha says, Borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. Then go into your house 
with your sons, shut the door behind you, pour olive oil from your flask into the jar, setting each one aside when it is filled. So again, here's one of those things where he's, he's saying, okay, you've asked me for help, that's a good thing, and now I know what you have available, so I want you to go out and get as many jars and basins and bowls as you possibly can, and go into your uh, home and start filling those things. And so that's a step of faith on her part in many ways. She doesn't know what's coming. She has no idea what's going to happen with all these bowls. And maybe she's even embarrassed as she goes around asking, can I borrow, can I borrow all the empty bowls that you've got? I, I promise I'll get them back. So anyway, she did what she's told. It says in verse 5, her sons kept bringing her jars to fill, and he filled one after another. Soon every container was full to the brim. Bring me another, she said, and one of her sons says, there aren't any more. And then, after they'd filled the very last of those things, the olive oil stopped flowing. You know, God was at work. He knew exactly how many basins needed to be filled. So then she goes out, <clears throat> and um, in verse 7, when she told the man of God what had happened, I got all this oil, <laughs> he said to her, sell the oil, pay off your debt, and you and your sons can live on the rest. How cool is that? You know, this is a woman who, <clears throat> through no fault of her own, is in a situation that's desperate, her husband had been apparently a faithful prophet with the community of prophets there. And so what does she do? She does what she's told. She's able to pay off the debt, and she's able to continue to live and care for her sons. Now, just an implication here. This really struck me as I studied this week. And as I studied this week, I was reading this passage over and over and thinking through, why is this here? What am I supposed to learn from this? Because it's a nice, I mean, if you read it, you think, oh, wow, I remember that in Sunday school. And and yet there's more to it than just having heard this, what the things that Elisha did. I love verse 2. What can I do to help you, Elisha asked. Tell me, what do you have in the house? And I find that kind of an interesting question when this woman is in desperate need. She said, I don't, I've got sons that are going to get taken into slavery. And, and he says, well, tell me what, what you've got. It's interesting, I thought back to the time when God was recruiting Moses to leave the desert and go back to Egypt. And if you remember, starting in chapter 3, there's this huge discussion. And it's basically a whole bunch of reasons why Moses is saying, it's, don't, don't call me, I can't do this. Don't call me, I don't want to do this. Lord, they're going to kill me. I'll just excuse after excuse after excuse. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, God continues to patiently work with Moses. And Moses protested again, what if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord appeared, has never appeared to you? Then the Lord asked him, what is that in your hand? What is that in your hand? And he said, a shepherd's staff. Moses said, throw it on the ground. And of course he threw it and it turns into a snake and you've got the the whole running. But think about what God is saying here. What have you got? Oh yeah, I've got my staff here. Okay, Moses, throw it down. On one level, I think what God was saying was, you're not going to be in control of all these things. All of the reasons that you gave me why you can't go and all the reasons why you don't want to go, you aren't in charge of any of that. And you're not in charge of making them believe you. And so on one level, when he threw down that staff, it was a surrender of control. I think you were saying, okay, God. Now there's still a little bit of discussion that takes place after that. But the turning point in it was, what have you got in your hand? Throw it down. 
That's the turning point, I believe, for Moses. When he finally gets in his head, okay, doesn't matter what I say, I'm going to have to go and do what God has called me to do. See, God knew what Moses was capable of, but he also knew he needed some help in understanding some things, so he sent him to the desert for 40 years until he finally figured out he could not do any of the things God was going to have him do without the Spirit of God working in him in a powerful way. And as he learned those lessons, that's when God came and said, Okay, now, now it's time. What have you got in your hand, Moses? Okay, let me tell you where you're going to go and what you're going to do. Now's the time. Arguments are over. You need to go. <clears throat> we were serving in Detroit, Caroline. We had a, a smallish home, a home that had no dining room and almost <laughs> no living room to speak of, and and, a, and a, a basement that was unfinished. And many times, we, you know, we we would eat downstairs because there was no room in the kitchen for us all to eat if we we're having people over for a meal. And I remember one time, kind of. After something like that, I was, I'd been praying for about a week or so saying, Lord, we really, man, we could do so much more if we had a bigger house. That was my prayer. And in my conscious thought, all of a sudden, it came to me, God impressed it on my mind. I'm not interested in what you would do if you had a bigger house. What are you going to do with what you have? What a powerful thing. God wasn't saying, you, you, you're exempt. You don't have to minister because you don't have a big place. God was saying, what have you got? Then you need to serve with what you have. But Lord, if we had a bigger home, then we could have more people. But Lord, if we had a really good minivan, then we could take people to Awana and camp. And but Lord, if we had a little more money, then we'd be able to give more. What have you got? What's in your hand? That's what God wants to know. Are we willing to take what we have, surrender control, and serve? Let's move on to the next big section. Um, go ahead and put that map up there, Gerald, if you would. Just leave it up there as we work through some of these verses. As you see here, the two um, places down below our circles, uh, as well as Jericho, were places where they had um, communities of prophets. There may have been uh, something up near Mark Carmel, we're not sure. Uh, but if you look at where the green era is, that's Shunem, and that Shunem is where we're going to be talking about in just a few minutes. Samaria, of course, is the capital. Jezreel, right close to Shunem, is, is where Ahab had his summer palace. Okay, so understand that Jezreel was probably a hotbed of Baal worship and a bunch of other things that went on there. So, verse 8, one day Elijah went to the town of Shunem, a wealthy woman lived there, and she urged him to come to her home for a meal. After that, must have been a good cook, right? After that, whenever he passed that way, he would stop there for something to eat. She said to her husband, I'm sure this is a man who, I'm sure this man who stops from time to time is a holy man of God. And then she talks about, let's build him a room. And so on the rooftop, roofs were all flat. They actually built a real room, not just a, not just a lean-to or a protective shelter. They built a room, put a bed in there. They put a table in there, lamp, so that when Elisha came through, there was a place for him to stay always. It was his room. It was reserved for him. And so that's what she wanted to do. Now, in um, a lot of societies, 
Um, <clears throat> women were considered inferior, and even in Israel, many times women were put down and looked down. And yet, as you as we go through this passage, I want you to see how God is caring for this woman. We saw how He cared for the widow in the first section. Now, let's see what He does for this woman. Understand, verse eight: She's a wealthy woman, and and she's got all these things. <clears throat> but and one day, verse eleven. Um, Elisha returned to Shunem, and he went up to his room, and he his servant Gehazi now is doing what uh, what Elisha had done for Elijah. Gehazi is doing for Elisha, and he says, "Hey, I want to talk to the to the woman." So she comes up, and he says, "We appreciate the kind concern you have shown us. What can we do for you? Can we put in a good word for you with the king?" Now, that immediately tells us something. He has some kind of relationship with the king of Israel because he can actually put in a good word for her. Now, she didn't ask for that, but he says, can we do that? Or the commander of the army. Apparently he knew the commander in charge of all of the armed forces of Israel. and He could say a word with to him if, if something was needed. Listen to her response. No, she replied, my family takes good care of me. Now, what is she saying here? I think what she's saying here is, I don't need anything. I, you know, I'm a fairly wealthy woman, and my husband does really well. So she has a home. That means that she's provided for, and she's able to, in that home, even provide a place for Elisha. So she's provided for. She also lives in a place where her family clan is part of what's going on there. And so as a result of that, she's protected. She's got a place that's provided for her. She's protected. This woman sounds like she's totally content with her life and everything is happening. So that's that's the thought that's coming through. Oh, my family's taking care of me. I'm doing great. Verse 14, later Elisha asked Gehazi, what can we do for her? And then he goes on to say, listen, her husband is, is a lot older than she is and she does not have a son. And so Gehazi's making it very clear, this woman, if she needs anything, it's, it's an heir. She needs someone who can then come in and take over the family and the, and the land and everything else. And that can only be a son. She doesn't have any children. And so, <clears throat> verse 16, um, oh, yeah, she, Gehazi brings her, or, uh, yeah, brings her back up in verse 16. Next year at this time, Elisha's saying to the woman, you will be holding a son in your arms. And she says, no, my Lord, she cried. And listen to the response. Oh, man of God, don't deceive me and get my hopes up like that. What is she saying? Out of the depths of what she's been through, being childless in that culture where it was looked down upon and, and you were thought to be under maybe the judgment of God or something else because the reality was your social security and, and everything dealt with having family. That's why when Ruth had uh, had her sons, it was like, you know, you're better than seven sons, Ruth, what you've done for, for Boaz. Anyway, so... She says, don't, don't do this. Don't play games with me. And that's exactly what she's saying. Uh, this is a need that she's had. She's probably already stopped praying about this because there just has no, there was been no hope, no movement at all, nothing happening. And, and there's this longing in her heart that you see because she's saying, don't play games with me. Don't promise something you aren't going to deliver when it's this. And so this is a really strong, strong statement. Um, don't make promises that you can't keep. So 
One day, when her child... Oh, so anyway, they come back a year later, and sure enough, she had a baby, and he was a son. He'd grown up, and time goes by between verse 17 and 18. One day, when her child was older, he went out to help his father, who was working with the harvesters. So they had enough land that they would hire harvesters to come in, and he was overseeing that, and the son went out with with his father. And suddenly he cried out, My head hurts, my head hurts. And his father said to one of the servants, Carry him home to his mother, So the servant took him home, and his mother held him on her lap. But around noontime, he died. And so now you've got a miracle child who's passed away. He's gone. Um, So she sends a message to her husband and says, Listen, send me a servant and and a donkey. I'm going to go and see the prophet. And uh, they have this discussion about why. She says, Don't worry about it. I'll I'll be back. And so she tells the, the guy... Don't, don't, don't spare any of the speed for me. We need to get there quickly. Now, what's implied by this trip that she wants to take to Elijah? And let's go ahead and put that map up there really quickly. Um, from Shunem to Mount Carmel, where she knew where Elijah was, or Elisha, sorry, um, is about 20 miles. And so she's going to make a 40 mile round trip to go get the prophet and come back. Okay? Now, we know they could walk way, way further than most of us could ever do it. And we know that a marathoner could do the 20 miles in, you know, less than two hours. And yeah, this is a, this is a serious trip she's taken here. So the boy is dead and he's not going to get better. She understands that. And she knows that this trip is going to take some time. Um, the boy is not going to be buried. He put, she put him on the prophet's bed and, and left him there with some instructions. And um, it says in verse 25 that Elijah sees her in the distance. He sends Gehazi to ask her what's going on. Is everything okay? And um, he, he says, everything okay? All right with you, your husband, your child? She says, yes, which is kind of an interesting statement. And then she goes on, and and she, they arrive there, at the, and um, she falls down before Elisha, and um, she's grabbing onto his feet. And this is a very humble and uh, a very deep expression of, of sorrow and pain that she's showing here. And um, Gehazi wants to kind of get her away, and, and uh, Elisha says, "No, don't don't do that. Um, I don't know what's going on yet, but this woman is deeply troubled." Um, and then she says in verse 28, Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? And didn't I say, don't deceive me or get my hopes up? So you can imagine she, she, he, you know, she received that gift of that child from God and how incredible that must have been and to raise him for a period of time, several years. And all of a sudden that dream which had been fulfilled was dashed. And so, Elisha sends Gehazi on ahead, and he said, put my, put my staff on the child's face, and don't stop, don't slow down. In other words, he's, he's thinking Gehazi's a lot younger, he can get there a lot quicker, so go, go, don't stop for anything. And then, um, verse 30, the boy's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives, and you yourself live, I won't go home unless you go with me. Okay, so she's saying to him, I'm not going anywhere, so, you know, if you want me to go home, then we need to go. Let's get going. So Elijah returned with her. 
Gehazi did hurry up, put the staff on the child's face. Nothing happened. <clears throat> and, you know, one of those things that, that just strikes you, he comes back out, obviously, and, and talks to Elijah as he's, as he's coming. Um, one of the things that struck me as I was going through this passage was when, when she asked, when she was asked, is your husband and your child okay? She said, yes. So the question becomes, and there's no way to really resolve it, but the question becomes, was this a yes of deception, where she wanted to just get past this guy so she could get to Elisha and tell Elijah what was going on and get, get some things moving, or was this a yes of faith, with her saying, yeah, he's going to be okay. And, and I, I can't resolve that for you. I, I wish I could. It doesn't say. We do know that she went. She brought him back. And her son did rise from the dead at that point. Um, now, why didn't he send Gehazi to do those things? It's possible that what he sent Gehazi to do was to simply say, Hey, don't bury this child. The prophet's coming. Because you know, normally it would be less than 24 hours. They would have to bury people in that time frame and in that culture. And so it's very possible he was going, it was very symbolic, he puts the, uh, the prophet's staff on the child, and that's to say, don't touch, Elisha's coming, just let it be. When Elisha arrived, verse 32, the child was indeed dead, lying there on the prophet's bed, and he went alone and shut the door behind him and prayed to the Lord. Don't you wonder what that prayer sounded like? <laughs> You're praying that God's going to do something really, really, really special and raise a little boy who's dead from the grave. Now, we have some details here that are just, they're interesting for us. We don't know exactly why they're there. You know, he puts his, his mouth on the child's mouth, his eye on the child's eye, hands on the child's hands. And, and um, matter of fact, I heard some guy preach one time about this is where mouth-to-mouth resuscitation started, and I, I don't think that's what's going on here. Uh, I think really in one sense there's symbolism there, the restoring of the breath, which he's asking God to do, and the sight and the strength. But what's going on here in this passage is that Elisha is praying and doing some things that we don't know why, but God is at work. And sometimes we're given information because that's what happened. We're not told why. Okay? Like the next thing that happens here, uh, verse 35 The boy warmed up, and finally the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Seven times. Okay? Now, again, why is that information there? And I start wondering, okay, well, maybe... And the reality is we don't know, and there's no reason to chase that. I've actually heard people preach sermons on the reason why he sneezed seven times. And I don't know, you know, and even at the time I didn't get it, because all it says is he sneezed seven times, and that's it. That's all the information we have. So no explanation is given for these actions, but the reality is <clears throat> that the, the child came back to life. And um, he calls his mother. She falls at his feet overwhelmed with gratitude, and then she took her son in her arms and carried him downstairs. Now, this is what's really cool. She got a double, double miracle, a double blessing, didn't she? Um, first of all, a child when she was barren. And then the child dies, and he's brought back to life. So it's like twice now she's seen God do incredible, powerful things. Now I just want to draw an implication here. God 
in his all-knowing sovereignty, brought Elisha and the Shunem woman together. And she provided for him and meals and a place to stay. But I think what God was doing was working to bring about something special in this woman's life. I really do. Um, she had she had a home that was provided for her. She was protected by family. And she seemed to be content until we actually read what she says when she's promised a son. Uh, verse 16, next year at this time you'll be holding a son in your arms. No, my Lord, O oh man of God, don't deceive me. Don't get my hopes up. And so on one level, God knew what was going on inside of her heart. He understood her longing. He understood what she had prayed for and probably by this point given up praying for. And yet God had a plan and that plan was to, to step into the situation and do something miraculously. Now what do we learn about God because of that? That's one of the things that struck me. <clears throat> I love the fact that God cares personally for her and uh, she's, she's obviously a believer. She's responded to the fact that Elijah, Elisha is a man of God, a prophet of God. And she wants to be able to serve him in, in special ways, and she does. <clears throat> and now God blesses that and says, okay, you've waited a long time. Now's the time for you to have a son. And, and he gives her a son. Now, remember where she's living. She's living a very, very short distance, maybe a mile or two from Jezreel where Ahab and Jezebel had their summer palace, where there were all kinds of people who were Baal worshippers. And in this small kind of a community, everybody knew that she'd been barren and then suddenly had an incredible child. And then they also heard about the child dying and the child being brought back to life. Can you imagine how the community reacted to some of those things that were going on? And, And they knew that she wasn't at the temple of Baal. And they knew that she wasn't worshiping Baal and, and that she had Elisha the prophet come and stay many times. I just love the fact that God has this woman in this unique place and is showing his love and concern for her, but also to the community saying, listen, Baal can't do this. This is stuff Baal can't do. And so she's this living testimony of what God can do. <clears throat> and then there's also the aspect of her faith. I think I, I, I lean more towards the side that when she said, yes, you know, everything's fine, she was believing that this is what was going to happen. God could give me a miracle baby once, he can cause another miracle and cause him to be raised to life. And I think there's a hint about this in Hebrews 11. Very end of Hebrews 11, verse 32, we have a whole bunch of things that the, he says, listen, I can't go into all the details about all these people who are people of faith. What more can I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. And then you've got this verse, 35. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. It's plural. It may very well be that the author had in mind Elijah, 
Remember when he staying with the widow Zarephath? Her little boy died, and he prayed, and God brought him back. And now you've got Elisha, same thing going on here. The woman from Shunem loses her son in death, and the Lord brings her back. So it's very possible that those are the two women that are at least included in that hall of, hall of faith because they received their debt back from the dead, or received their, <clears throat> their debt back, uh, and, and they were raised to life again. So I, I just, to me, it just struck me how God was doing some really unique things in this whole situation. And, and in his sovereignty, he used Elisha to encourage this woman and, and her family. And, <clears throat> you know, she didn't have to tell Gehazi she had a heavy heart and that she had been struggling with this issue for years. Gehazi knew and he told Elisha, and sure enough, God worked and did some powerful things. Let's uh, finish up the chapter. We have two uh, things having to do with food at this point in time. Um, verse 38, he goes to Gilgal, which is down there in the southern part of Israel, to pro- the community of prophets. He's down there now at this point. And it says in verse 38, Elisha now returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. Okay, so this isn't the one that Elijah did way back. This is a different famine. Uh, and <clears throat> so here they are. He's there teaching and ministering to the, to the community of prophets. And they're all seated there. And he tells Gehazi to go and, and, and uh, get some food ready. Um, make, a, make a big stew, I think is what he was saying. And then verse 39, one of the young men went out into the field to gather herbs and came back with a pocket full of gourds, and he shredded them and put them in the pot without realizing they were poisonous. Okay? Now, again, go back and remember, this is a group of people that need to be fed. This is famine we're talking about, so it's not like they can throw the stew out and start all over. They they just can't do that. Anyway, so some of the stew was served to the men, and after they'd eaten it, they said, Man of God, there's poison in the stew. Some translations say there's death in the stew. And uh, we don't know if anybody was harmed or just got sick or whatever, but uh, at that point... Elisha said, let's get some flour, some flour, he put it in the stew. And it wasn't that the flour changed the chemical makeup or anything, it's just that flour was symbolic of God is going to do something. And he put the flour in the stew and it was perfectly okay. Everybody ate it and uh, there were no problems. Um, remember when they watered Jericho was bitter, he did the same thing, put some salt in the water and all of the water was was fine after that. And that's what happened with this. Um, there's a lot of, <laughs> my mind went all kinds of different ways, and my first very practical application was don't let people who don't know what they're doing collect gourds. Uh, you know, who, who wants to put poison in the stew? That's ridiculous. Um, on the other hand, I love the fact that for Elisha it was no big deal. God can do this. Yeah, God's got this. We're not losing any food. We're going to feed everybody that needs to be fed, and so he, he does the flour. A little bit later, probably still in Gilead, um, or Gilgal, sorry, one day a man from Basha, Baal Shalisha, brought the man of God a sack of fresh grain and 20 loaves of barley made from the first grain of his harvest. Uh, and so anyway, this guy comes and he brings some flour and he brings 20 loaves. Now we're not talking big loaves, probably little small loaves. And um, it's interesting 
he's bringing of his first fruits, which is what you would normally do in Israel. You would take it to the temple, to the priests. Well, he's living in Israel. There is no temple. The priests aren't there. I'm not sure if he was even possible for him to go to Jerusalem. But he did know that Elijah was a, pro- was a prophet of God. And so he brought his offering to Elijah, saying, Here, I want you to be able to use these first fruits for something important. And I love what Elisha does. He said, Give it to the people so they can eat. For this is what the Lord says, Everyone who will eat, everyone will eat, and there will even be some left over. And the reason why he had to say that was that someone said, Wait a minute, this is enough for a for hundred people. We got eight little bitty loaves here and a little bit of grain. That's not going to feed enough people. And he said, just give it to them. It'll be enough. And there'll be some left over. You start thinking a little bit about uh, other places where that happened miraculously. I love the fact that Elisha didn't hesitate here. I mean, you know, oh, wow, thank you. That's awesome. People are hungry. Let's feed them. And everybody got fed. And there were some leftovers. Uh, again, these, this one in particular, see, Baal was supposed to be able to provide the rain and provide the harvest and all those kinds of things. He, he didn't, and he couldn't. And so in another way, this, is, this was Elisha's simple way of saying, that, you know, and, and everybody else, hey, our God is the true God, and Baal is not. Now, what do we take away from this? First of all, because God is omniscient, because God is all-knowing, it means He knows all things. He knows my fears, my doubts, my bitterness. He knows the prophet's widow needs divine help. And so He sends Elisha to redeem and pay off the debt. Isn't that cool? God knows. And, and, and because He knows, He can act and do what needs to be done. Because God, the next one, because God is omnipotent, all-powerful. He has the power to act, even in hopeless situations, even in times when it seems like no, nothing can happen here that's, that's good. And yet he changes the stew into a meal, multiplies bread, so everyone has enough and there's some left over as well. Because God is sovereign, he controls all things. There are no details which escape his notice. He's able to give the wealthy Shunammite the one thing she desperately needed and wanted, a son, and gave it to her again a second time. Because God does not change, because he's immutable, he's able to faithfully show his mercy and grace always. Always. God is never not merciful. God is never um, <clears throat> not showing his, his grace in powerful ways. So even when we're struggling and hurting and we're in desperate need, we need to be looking and thinking, okay, where's the mercy of God in this? Where's the grace of God in this? Because God's mercy is working and God's grace is working and God faithfully, faithfully continues to work in the hearts and lives of his people. God is faithful. He's blessed controller of all things. And for me, the thought <clears throat> came through over and over in this passage was, may I grow in my love and appreciation so that I can obey and serve Him faithfully. My thankfulness at seeing all the different aspects of how God was, was working in very precious, precious ways. And so we 
come to the point where we say, all right, Lord, help us. Help us to know you more. Help us to pursue you. And Lord, thank you that you are at work. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your incredible grace and mercy. Lord, thank you that even though you know all things and you know how many times we fail you, even in, even just today, you are still merciful and gracious and you're still calling us to serve and follow and to obey. And so, Lord, I just thank you. I thank you for the lessons here in, in this chapter that just point us back to you and how you are sovereign over all things and how we can trust you. So I thank you for that, and in your name we pray. Amen.